You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My wife was with me. I remember we ate at a, f- a restaurant that had like all, I think it was called raw or something like that. Like it was all just like raw food, nothing cooked. And it was really good. And then I had the massive, massive shits. And I had such bad fucking diarrhea. My, like I was just like ready to explode all over the fucking place. And I couldn't find a bathroom. And I think I did that show with them. The whole time clenching, trying not to <laughs> shit all over. Oh my god! Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to 2020. My name's Benny Goodman. I'm here with my compatriots, my cohorts, my partners in crime, Siobhan Cronin and Corey. What's going on, guys? Excited to dive into part two with Ron, aka Bumblefoot. Um, took us to space, literally. <laughs> this yep. guy, I swear to God, if you don't have a PhD. If you haven't read at least 10,000 books, there's a chance you're not going to understand everything, but you should listen and try to absorb this man because he he just knows he's like he's like Socrates in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He's like a jukebox. I mean, you can you can recall just about any song and he knows the solo, the riff, he can play it backwards. He's an actual savant. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. By the time he was five, he was better than you at everything. So like just there you go. Still is. (laughs) (laughs) so you can look forward to more of that here but at five two part two with bumblefoot 2020-d.com like subscribe subscribe. hello welcome back to another episode of 2020 we are super excited to welcome back Ron Bumblefoot Thal, uh, who gave us a masterclass in uh, our first episode, part one. Make sure you in go everything. check it out. Uh, and in this episode, we've talked we've talked extensively on music. We're gonna get back into it, but right now I want to start off with hot sauces. What motivates one to delve into the world of hot sauces? Well, for me, I was twelve years old, and it's old. Older cousin Steve that dared me one time at a family get together said, I'm, I dare you to eat a hot pepper. If you eat it, I'll give you five bucks. And I was trying to save up for more DiMarzio pickups and stuff. To, you know, I was always swapping things out and experimenting with the guitars and all. So I was like, I could use that. Got to get another super distortion. So, uh, so I ate a pepper and I liked it very much. And since then, I would always load up turkey sandwiches with spicy brown mustard and line them up with just cut up hot red peppers and and people that knew me knew i liked spicy stuff so it's like happy birthday and they would get me some weird hot sauce so then they would get me it's like here's a collection of all the dave's insanity sauces and here's this and here's that and next thing you know half the fridge is just full of bottles of hot sauce and just like music when you take in all that music it reaches a point where 
you just want to give it back. And, and it's like, I want to do this. I want to make music. I want people to feel the way this makes me feel. I want to be able to do that for people. And so I guess in my case, like, I want people to scream and cry and feel burnt on the inside and, <laughs> and hurt the next day. And so, so I started getting into hot sauce and I teamed up with a wonderful company called K-John's. And they took me under their wing and they made it happen. Uh, I had all these flavor ideas and I remember I flew out and we went in the kitchen and, and their expert chef and all. And we started cooking things up and ran to the store and got different berries because my blueberry idea, once they cooked, they were too mellow. So they said, well, we try sour cherry instead, that kind of thing. And, and definitely made it happen. So in 2013, I rolled out six sauces, two of which won first place awards at the, I guess you could say like the NAM convention of, of hot food. Of, yeah, they have those. They have food conventions of just like super spicy food and hot sauces and things. So one that happens in Dallas every year called Zest Fest. So I submitted my sauces and two of them won first place awards. Like, wow, nice. That's amazing. So now it's like award winning hot sauces and, and kept it going. And then uh, K John's, they sold the company. And I was like, all right, you know what? I am going to just put the pieces together myself. So I got my own Bumblefoot Foods LLC and, and got manufacturer and distributor and resellers off that distributor and the label makers and just put all the parts in place and rolled them back out early 2020. Uh, and again, in Zestfest, two of them won first place awards again. So now I have two two-time first, first place award-winning hot sauces. Yes. Wow. Well, clearly you're a master of, of, you know, taking, synthesizing things that make you happy and then resharing them with the world. And I want to kind of spin it back to music a little bit and ask you, you know, you've referenced a few times how, you know, you went through and learned all these different things and really loved playing. And then at a certain point you became a writer also. And I want to ask, you know, how did you learn the art of writing and, you know, what sort of influences have you pulled into the process of your own writing? How did you, how did you get good at that? Because I'm curious as someone, I play all the time and I'm still not great at writing <laughs> and I've learned a lot of repertoire. Um, and I'm just, over here. I, I, <laughs> I wrote better songs when I was six. More people are going to remember Jupiter is nice after hearing it once than anything I write today. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. You just write. Well, the way it happens for me is I'll be driving and a melody will pop in my head. It's just, or a feeling, really just a feeling, a, a mood. And there's a melody, a whole, not just a melody, but just a whole overall thing that matches that mood. So it's almost like you hear the song or not even you hear the song. You feel what whatever this song is going to be makes you feel like, and then you work backwards and say, let me make the song that matches that feeling. And kind of like learning eruption backwards. Kind of. I, I tend to work back. Like everything I do, I start from the final thing and work towards it in reverse. So instead of making something and then saying, okay, well, that didn't turn out how I thought it was going to, it's kind of like, if possible, uh, if you want to make a cake, starting off with the actual cake and then 
I guess you could say deconstructing it in reverse, if that makes sense. Uh, so. <laughs> I feel like we're getting so into some quantum physics here. It's like, you know, the cake exists and does not exist at the same time. It does exist. Yeah. So it's the same with a song. So a lot of times I'll just have a mood and attitude of feeling and then I write towards that feeling and, and work it together. And, and usually it happens just kind of like that, where it just all comes together. It's like, okay, I know what the cellos are going to do. There's going to be horn hits here. And this is where the harmonies build. And this is the groove. And this is how I'm going to sing it with this kind of snotty tone. And this is how I'm going to do this. And, and it just works that way. So you have the, you do you have a holistic view of what you're trying to create. And then you're going back and, 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 kind of pulling out the pieces in, for the individual parts, but you actually see the whole picture kind of from the beginning. You see the finished house and then you start with the foundation. Yeah. It's ah. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. So it's, and you kind of, even when, when mixing a song or, or like recording a band, like I just spent two weeks with this, this great band, this duo called the Dodies, D-O-D-I-E-S. Uh, that's with the, the drummer that plays the keyboard, right? At the same time. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I've, I've listened to that. Keyboards, playing drums, and they're amazing. So I know what they want to sound like. I know what kind of vibe they're going for. So even when we were getting drum sounds and everything, I'm thinking of how it's going to sound in the final mix and getting as close to that in just raw drums you know, so that you just, yeah, yeah, just you always have the final result, the end goal in mind, and you're almost, that's what you're working towards in, in every aspect is, is making that happen. It's, it's a whole when concept. You're, when you're working with another band and you're producing someone else's vision, is there a different approach? Do you have to kind of get into their mindset first and then, oh, then visualize it how they should, you know, how they see it? Completely. You should be invisible. It's all about them and, and make just making the most robust version of them, just bringing all the best aspects of them forward. Uh, and it's always different. Every, everyone you're producing needs something else. Some need co-writing. Some don't need a thing. You just need to capture the right moment of them performing. Uh, and it's all different. Like with the Dodies, no click track, no sound replacement of any kind, none of that crap. Uh, two guys in a room facing each other, playing live. And as far as getting clean tracks and, you know, for mixing and all that's on me. And I do it, find a way. And knowing what kind of sounds they want to get, picking the right amps and having the right uh, routing of things. And yeah, drums, like for their, their drum sound. I know they wanted a real nasty, gritty drum sound. So I got metal buckets and I aimed one, a higher pitched one at the snare with a dynamic inside it, just capturing the resonance so that when the snare hits, it just echoes in this thing and you capture that. Another one in the hallway that had a deeper tone that just really brought uh, just the kick snare and toms together and, and this fatness. And we had a van that was like disassembled and we took sheets of metal and lined the walls with them to get just more of like just metallic kind of overtones to everything and all of that, it worked. Greatest drum sound. Holy shit. Uh, 
Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, that's amazing. I want to ask you, so, I mean, recording is an art in itself, and that's something that takes many people a long time to sort of learn and get comfortable with. At what point, I imagine, obviously, as a guitar player, you've had to record yourself from pretty early on, but how? at what point did you get into the idea of recording others or having a studio, or when did that start to interest you? Immediately. Uh, everything you do, you share. So when I started learning, I started teaching. When I started recording, I started recording other people. Uh, always, that's that's what it's about. It's you know, especially in music, it's so communal and it's so. Were you like the first kid with the four track? Did you like go to people's houses and be like, I with your four microphones and your four track, and be like I can make you a demo? Because like I, that's how I got into recording was I was the dude with the four track. I had a, a Fostex eight track, fifteen IPS quarter inch machine, and a very tolerant set of parents and a, <laughs> and a basement that was as soundproofed as we can get it. And I would, people would come down and, and they were used to it from us just practicing and jamming and everything in the basement. So, so as long as we were done by dinner, they put up with us. So yeah, so I did that. But as far as jumping back to the whole songwriting thing and, and all of that, it just happens in my head. I'm driving and suddenly just some melody. I'm just thinking about something. So I, one song I remember just popped in my head, just started singing it. Um, damn tuning. Do you hear thinking about uh, how always when I'm uh, teaching about melody and different styles, I'll reference how Paul McCartney will always play around with beat one and the resolve where if it's an upbeat song, he'll be half a beat early on one of the notes that are in the next chord that tie the music together. Or he'll delay it and leave you hanging in, in that little suspended realm for half a beat. That kind of thing. Uh, so think of that, that solemn suspension that he would do. Uh, Can you explain a hard day's night? That's what I want to know, because you're the smartest guy I've ever talked to about music. What is that chord? What's going oh, on? Okay. The chord is a combination of D sus four and in the F add nine. With the G in the twelve string, and this is actually in there too. And the bass is hitting a low, so you have a low, and this guitar one, and guitar two. That's what that is. It's been a hard day's night. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Eat your heart out, Johnny A. Can we get the soul? <laughs> We're gonna get the full catalog of everything well, since well, 1965. He, you cover so I wanted to ask you about that because you cover the Beatles and and for a lot of people, look, covering the Beatles is like sacred ground. Like, don't do that. But I feel like you are an Olympic musician. So what when you approach the Beatles with like let's say a guy like Mike Portnoy who's clearly one of the greatest like bibliophiles when it comes to music. Like that guy is just like rain man when it comes to music. What are you guys saying in the studio when you're like we're doing this holy song? Nail it or don't do it. Get the tones, get the vibe, get everything. You know, get in touch with your inner beetle or don't fuck with it. Who's your inner beetle? Which one? Ooh. That's that's so damn tough because each one had such an important ingredient to the overall flavor that you love. I'll go first. Stu Sutcliffe. Like hot sauce. Stu Sutcliffe? That's yeah, that's me. That's the, uh, that's the Beatle that I'm, I resonate with, the guy favorite, that's dead. Yeah, like hot sauce. And my favorite uh, would have to be George Martin because he was the one that yeah, took the fifth a Beatle. Yeah, scrambled eggs. And he put in all the, you know. All that in there. Funny story, Ron, is I actually talked to Sir George Martin. He did a um, he did a an art exhibit in in Boston, and I think I was like fifteen or sixteen, and he was at a party that I was at. I didn't know who he was for a solid forty five minutes, and he just drank that in so hard. And then when he told me, and like I kind of like realized I was talking to the Fifth Beatle, I it, it, it blew my mind. So I, I got to tell you that I've now gone back and realized that that's the most important archetype for a producer in history because people don't realize like when you say like this guy produced it like a lot of people don't understand what that means but right. George Martin and Sir George Martin he earned that uh, basically is the the exemplary producer that not only produced but but helped make a band and that's that's so important and, I, and I'm glad that you pointed that out as far as your your beetle spirit animal because he's he's so important to that band yeah so there's I think everything everyone loves is like the attitude John had, the musicality that Paul had, the wis- wisdom. It's like, I don't say much, but when I do, it's something major. And it's of, of Harrison. Yeah. It's like, I won't write a lot of songs, but when I do, you know, it's going to be something fucking huge. Well, do you know that he, he so they didn't give him stuff? Everything. They didn't actually know, he, but he had to fight for it for like, you know, my, while my guitar gently weeps. Do you know how that made the record? I heard the story, yeah. Yeah, so basically like George, uh, uh, George Harrison thought, it's for you guys, um, that they weren't gonna, uh, that John and Paul were kind of overwhelming as far as the writing. So he brought his buddy Eric Clapton down and then had Eric sell them on his song. And they're like, oh, that's great. He's like, oh, it's George's song. And that's how My Guitar Gently Weeps ended up on the record. 
One of the best songs ever, by the way. While we're here with with the guitars out, I do have a question from a violinist because I play a fretless instrument, right? And I'm curious about what is the um, interest behind playing a fretless guitar? Like, what can you achieve on that? Or what is it that draws you to playing that also? That right there. (laughs) A very succinct answer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's so much you can do with it that those little bumpies get in the way. Yeah. Uh, Technically have, speaking, though, does it? Do you have to kind of learn it in a different way than you approach the uh, fretted guitar? I mean, it, I imagine that would kind of like mess me up a little bit. Definitely. You know, you get used to bending the string. So they uh, just working along the direction of the string for different grades of vibrato, uh, the, the bending. Did uh, you study like lab steel or something? Because I feel like watching you is like watching David Gilmore do his all his stuff. Like you know what I mean? Because like watching, you don't realize what, when you're a kid, like listening to Shine On Your Crazy Diamond or something. You're like, he's doing it like this, you know, and you're just doing it like a normal guitar. But like I feel like that's what. I loved about Gilmore is what you're doing right there, but he did it on the lap steel. Oh yeah, um, I haven't really dabbled in it very much. More just doing it on here. Just well, you're good enough at that. Work. You can stay there. A lot of the stuff is so. cool things that I'm, I'm jealous of of the fretless players is you can do a real vibrato the up and down whereas mm-hmm. you're kind of lost unless you're doing a bend on a, on a fretted guitar you can't really get the down right yeah yeah so I'm there's, saying- there, there's something special about that sound on a guitar it's kind of cool yeah that, that's with with the, the fretted what i tend to do is unless i'm on a third or a seventh where it's okay to venture into the next uh, half step. But if you do it on on anything where where it's just going out of kick, if you 
like I said, that sharpened thing. So what I always do is I just do the back and forth. And do a, And it's a hell of a lot sweeter than just pushing that sharp thing. So that's usually what I'll do unless I'm on something where, you know, there's a, a note that's in the key a half step above. Then it's okay if you're venturing towards it because it feels like you're just in between the two notes that are okay. So, yeah. That's really interesting. Did, did you, because of your, your fretless guitar, feel like that it helped your intonation on your six string guitar? Because it seems to me like choices like that, like it's just one of those things where your ears become so in tune. And I have to think that if you're not using frets, that your intonation must be out, out of, like your natural um, ear must be out of control, that you, you make decisions like that, that most mortal beings would be like, oh, that sounds fine. Oh, I don't know, I guess, maybe. Um, well, the thing is with the fretless though, you can get away with wide vibrato on any note because you can get the, you know, sharp flat, sharp flat, sharp flat. So, and you're still staying you know whether like here's the note you're doing that or you're doing that or some it's still the correct center here's here's a science question because i i I love following you on social media because you post the coolest articles and you know there's all kinds of stuff about 440 hertz being like what what most people tune to, and I remember we had talked about this, you know, our, ourselves. Four forty two. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you explain to people because it's come up on our show, and we I, I joked around that it was actually from like a Nazi thing, which if you follow history, like actually kind of is. What, what do you think about the Earth actually having a vibration, and like what are you tuned into, man? I want to get hippie with oh, you for a moment because I well, find it interesting. I mean, everything I guess has a vibration in some way, or everything will react to certain vibrations or certain speeds of vibrations, certain frequencies. Uh, me personally, don't make a shit bit of difference. Uh, 440, 432, whatever the fuck. Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, it's to me like the music itself, as long as it's in harmony with itself and it's working and achieving what you want it to, uh, if it's slightly sharper than 440 or flatter, it doesn't matter. Does one feel like it's I'm more grounded to the center core of the earth by hearing it this way? Not necessarily because, you know, you know, there, there's other variables that come into play as far as that goes. Uh, you know, these rules only apply in our air at our speed and the speed of what the music is going at as well, if it's coming towards us or farther away from us, I mean, Doppler effect. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more to it. You know, it's like the rules of all of that shit really only apply in a sort of specific environment. And we're not necessarily always in that exact environment. Maybe what we hear is 440, someone else moving really fast at a certain altitude 
where there's maybe different things in the air, is it possible that they might not hear it the exact same way? I would imagine so. <laughs> wow. It's a, great, it's a great philosophy, yeah. So, so it really, it's, I'd say, like, when it comes to that shit, uh, everything is a bit floating. It's like you can take a piece of music at 440, but if you're going this way and it's coming at you this way and suddenly it moves, it's not going to still be 440. It might be if you're staying with it, but there are other things that come into play. Yeah. I've also Absolutely. heard tons of tons of bands that don't know how to tune that, that have played at every other <laughs> type of tuning imaginable. <laughs> well, right, speaking of bands, not... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm going to say, if you want to play in 440, you know, you want to play 432? There you go. And 432. Oh, that hurts, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. For me, I just nice. this great, great oneness with all things when I just move my finger that much. Uh, <laughs> well, when you learn that time is just a construct, then you realize that all of this is just silly. Exactly. Yeah. It's all okay, about so energy before transference. We, yeah, before we get too theoretical. About? Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you mentioned neutrinos before and the search for the sterile neutrino. Well, what I say is that perhaps it's, it appears just in one little flash of Planck time where you have the past, you have the future, and that line that separates, which is, if it's even a, a Planck measurement, is where the sterile neutrino lies. Where, think of it this way, positive, positive, neutral, negative. Negative, neutral, positive. We can't catch it because it goes by so fast. It's like, it's like saying, here, I want you to capture the present. Ready? Go. Can't. You know, it, it was the future and it just became the past. So, it's kind, of, so it's kind of like a candle that melts. And it, you know, it first starts off as a candle. But then when it's all done and it's all melted, is it the same thing? Think of it as the line. Like the present is like an almost immeasurable line. That, that you can't like, reduce it to a small, small enough frame of period. Time. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's like the event horizon. It is, you know, it is our, you know, what we're expecting, the future that becomes the past. And even then, what we expect in the future is it's just a question of do we choose it? You know, getting into the quantum shit. Well, if, if so time's if not it, even a real thing, how are we slowing it down? You know, we're, we just go by everything like, you know, we're self-centered creatures. So it's all about our measurements. You know, it's all about us, our perceptions, our, our everything, me, 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 me. Uh, yeah. So unless you're the guy from Blink-182 and then it's about UFOs because he got the NSA and the CIA to actually admit some of the footage he posted. Isn't that crazy that the guitarist from Blink-182 actually got the government to admit that there are UFOs? Like, that's insane to me. Like, the guy that wrote What's My Age Again, which is a brilliant song. It really is. But he's like, he got the government with his 600 page book and his documentary to admit, hey, this is, we don't know what that is. Did you know that? It doesn't mean it's an alien. It means they just, it's unidentified. They don't know what it is. <laughs> it's Elon Musk checking things out for Tesla. Okay, well, Ben, before we get too off the rails here, I want I want to come back a little bit, not to interrupt the train of thought, but I before we 
get through yet another episode before we get to the end. I do want to ask about some of the projects that you're in, have been in. Talk a little bit about playing in bands, um, you know, because obviously we're very interested in you and your career. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we, we got a lot into your background and your childhood and getting into music, but can you talk about when you started to really uh, tour, get into bands, uh, do it for a living? Um, you know, you're in Sons of Apollo, you've played with Guns N' Roses. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how that all happened for the listeners? It's just a slow, steady climb. Uh, just everything you're doing, every branch of that tree just keeps on sprouting. So, you know, I was playing local shows, figure, okay, six years old through 13, playing at school I went to, playing backyard, basement, my neighbor's backyard, little local concerts. We would just cut up our own like, pieces of paper and just cut them up into confetti and throw them up at the end of the show, just doing our own thing. And then 14 years old, started playing bars, stuff like that. Uh, then, you know, you, you get to the driving age and you can get a little farther, get out of your own town and, and start, you know, and then it become tours. Uh, so it's just, it's a slow growth in, in that part of it. Same thing, you know, teaching, teaching at home and then teaching at a friend's store and then teaching at the Sam Ash Music Academy and then running the music department of a private school and then becoming a professor at SUNY Purchase College. Each thing is just a step that grows. Uh, so when did I start making a living from it? I guess early 20s, had a couple of cover bands. I was teaching, I was recording, uh, started getting commercial releases happening. Uh, and it, again, it's everything. You have to be diverse and you have to just do it all. If you're just going to do one thing, if you're just going to be like, well, I'm just going to be uh, a session guy. If there's no sessions, you're screwed. I'm just going to be a hired gun for bands. If there's no gigs, you're screwed. I mean, hell, we saw that the past year and a half. So, so that's the thing. Like, you, you should... Uh, explore your interests and expand on them. And thank God for hot sauce. Well, grow. Yeah, hot sauce. That too. Yeah. Diversification. So, yeah, just be diverse. If we learned anything from the crash of twenty nine, it's have a diverse portfolio. And you know, by that I mean investing in yourself. Uh, you don't know which thing is going to take off, and each one helps the other in some way. So do it all. Do everything you can do. Share Did, did you have a Absolutely, I totally agree. Um did, did you have a vision at a, a young age of what you know, like you you said you listened to a Kiss album and you were like that's what I want to do. Did you have a vision of what you actually wanted to do specifically that you wanted to be a guitar player in a band or like what what was your early vision of what you wanted to achieve? Uh, well, definitely the the main ones, the launching pads were Kiss and the Beatles. So what I wanted to be was a member, a contributing member of a band where each person has a strong personality that comes together and creates something unique. Uh, that's what I always wanted. So that's kind of what I went for. Even when I first signed with Shrapnel Records, uh, actually before I even signed, years before, 
uh, Mike Varney asked me, he's like, hey, you know, I have this band idea I want to put together with you and this guy and this guy. And, and I didn't want to do projects and things like that. And I didn't want to do that kind of music. I wanted to do vocal, rock and roll music, rock music, and being something where, you know, it's that team, that family, that, that relationship, that marriage. Uh, yeah. And that's what I always worked towards. And did it quite happen the way I hoped it would when I was six? No, it took lots of different twists and turns. Uh, I don't know if it would have been different if I said no to certain things or yes to other things. You never know. But the way I just look at it is that uh, I am where I'm supposed to be. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. So. Can I tell you one of the coolest moments of my entire life was I played this show, Loka Bazooka 2007. And, yep. you know, it, the whole the whole concept of that show was to put local bands with bigger dudes. And you were, again, at the time, you had just joined Guns N' Roses or, or pretty soon. Uh, and, you know, Frank, the drum, current drummer of Guns N' Roses, was in your band. And I remember I was actually I helped the guy who put on that show that year. So I was like behind the scenes. I'm like, oh, dude, it's a guy from Guns N' Roses. Holy fucking shit. And then we show up to the show and you're like carrying all your stuff in. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Bumble Fight. Like, you're like the most humble guy and one of the most cool moments was my dad he doesn't give a fuck about anything he doesn't listen to anything past the 18th century he like walks up like you know in his dickies whatever he's like so uh do you like do this for a living as i'm buying a shirt that's like bright yellow that says like you know uh like you're an a who uh, my name is ron and you're an asshole and it's like bright oh, no, yellow. yeah it was the douchebag shirt it was like Hello, my name oh, is Ronald, and your name is Douchebag. Yeah. So I just bought this. I'm wearing it in front of my dad. who's like looking at it with disdain. And he's like, so do you like actually do this as you're like holding your amp? And like, I'm like, dad, he just played like rock and Rio with guns and roses. My dad's like, who's that? And like, I could just see you smelling in like, they're like, oh, I love this guy. He doesn't know shit about what's going on. Like, this is great. But my dad, like, like literally was like, so you could do this for, this is an actual thing. And that was one of the greatest moments was watching my dad like talk to you like just totally ignorant like guns and roses this is a thing and you were just so humble that like you don't give off like that i'm slash you give off like a, i will give you a guitar lesson and tune your guitar for you miss because uh, i'm helpful even though i don't work here <laughs> well yeah i mean i'm still me you know none of that shit none of, that doesn't change who you are and, and you can't let it uh you cannot let yourself become defined by the exterior absolutely then then you're a slave to it all and you're fucked uh, yeah, you have to, it's basically take everything away. That's who you are. And that's well, who you have to stay. And who you are, you showed up later that night. And this is a true story. So one of my friends was managing this local band that didn't deserve what happened. But you showed up and they're, they're like huge Guns N' Roses fans. And you literally came and played five Guns tunes at Bill's Bar in Boston with him. You just walked in, took one of the guy's guitars. And you're like, you're letting him trade off with you as you're just murdering face. I still have like terrible video of this somewhere. But like... I just thought it was the coolest thing that not only did you play the show, you came and hung out with like a bunch of people. We watched other bands together. You came later that night to Boston and just showed up and you just like, I'll play some guns tunes with you. And like, I'm like, who is this guy? Like you're like Tom Hanks or Keanu Reeves or some shit. Oh, you know, I totally forgot that happened. And you just reminded me everything. Uh, my wife was with me. I remember we ate at a, a restaurant that had like all I think it was called raw or something like that. Like it was all just like raw food, nothing cooked. And it was really good. 
And then I had the massive, massive shits. And I had such bad fucking diarrhea. My, like, I was just like ready to explode all over the fucking place. And I couldn't find a bathroom. And I think I did that show with them the whole time clenching, trying not to shit all over the Oh my and I was just like, just thinking to myself, like, when this is done, I need to find a bathroom really Because I'm about to go raw all over this Corey, I'm, Corey, I'm going to find the footage just for you. So we can all envision that. Yes, please do. <laughs> That's now, outrageous. Oh that was blocked out of my memory. I was never going to remember that. And you just brought it back. You're welcome. You've been, you've been 2020. That's what we call that. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted, oh my I wanted to talk to you about something because you said Mike Varney and uh, I know that you've been involved with this but this is for those that don't know Jason Becker's prototype numbers guitar and um, I, I've been doing something with my uh, YouTube channel The Neurotic Guitarist where we've been trying to put this guitar in different people's hands so far uh, Nina Strauss was cool enough to play it with Alice Cooper we had the guys in Cradle of Filth come down I'm gonna make sure that Star Set when they come to town and the guys in Godsmack and we just met up with Gary and Pat from Extreme and I'm hoping that when you come to town that you'll be kind enough because I know that you've been such a, a a great dude talking with Herman Lee and all this stuff for Jason Becker who is a huge inspiration for me and I'm sure you can talk about it but I'm doing a hashtag uh, hashtag ALS awareness for Jason because I, I realized in, in, in talking to him and, and, and getting to know him that people actually, as much as you think they know the story, they don't. So I want to create uh, awareness around it and also by putting this guitar in people's hands, including Miles Kennedy, who agreed to play it on air. Corey, you have it. So it's a contract, according to Judge Judy. So, Ron, would you be kind enough when you come to Boston and uh, play a little doodah on this for uh, for Jason? Hell yeah. I'm like, I'm not worthy. But yeah, I would play it. I'd be afraid to. It's like one of those things like, don't even point at it, you know. Uh, but yeah, I would play it. Absolutely. Uh, I feel undeserving, unworthy. But Well, the thing I say about it to people, I, I, the, the, the truth is, and I've, I've gotten to know his family a little bit, and I've gotten to know Jason, and um, not, not a lot. Like, I don't want to sound like, oh, me and him are best friends. But you have to think about what he's going through. You know, most people don't last two, three years. He's 25 plus years, man. And like, that's first off, like that's a crazy amount of money that it takes to, to, to take care of a gentleman like him. And then to be totally cogent and to, and coherent and have all that going on in your mind, but not being able to get it out. I know that at this point we've raised a lot of money for him, but our real objective with this is to make him happy. Cause I know that when I spoke to him, what would make him happy is for him to continue to inspire good music. You know, so that's really what I want to do is be able to send him video because he watches all of it. He'll watch this and for him to, you know, wherever he in his mind, smile. The fact that we're all thinking of him and sending good vibes and letting people know of his story. I spoke to him once when it was just when he was just diagnosed. Uh, Mike Varney put me on the phone with him. Like the two of them, they called me. And just to sort of meet. Uh, and I remember after the conversation, like just in the back of my head, I was like, I just, when it was time to say goodbye, and I was like, all right, you know, it was great talking to you, you know, wish you the best. And remember, I was just thinking, like, I, I just, in my head, like, I knew the challenges he was about to embark on. And and I was just like trying to suppress the emotion and just not get all mushy on him and everything. And I just blurted out, 
to him on the phone. Like we were about to hang up. I was like, Jason, I love you, man. <laughs> and I never even met the guy. I just, and after I said the, like after words came out of my mouth, it was like, when I was stupid, why did you say that? Like, that's just, it's just, it seemed like disingenuous, you know, just, I love you. Like, I don't even fucking know him, but just, I was just filled with just so much. I don't know what the word is. Uh, empathy. empathy. Kind of, empathy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just, just wanted to give him whatever I got. And that just like flew out of my mouth. And I felt so stupid afterwards saying it. I was like, he's going to think I'm like such a, just like a weird fanboy kind of just weirdo. And, you know, but yeah, but I, that, that's what I remember being on the phone with, with Mike Varney and, and Jason Becker. And we're about to hang up and I stopped them from hanging out. I'm like, Jason, Jason, I love you, man. <laughs> amazing there's there's like, worse there's worse things you could was, have said that <laughs> i think i was like 21 22 like we were, we were around the same age yeah. and it, he was just diagnosed yeah. and yeah 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 oh my goodness it's tough but. um well to bring things into a more positive light and this is amazing i'm so happy to hear that you would like to play on the guitar and thanks ben for sharing it um but thanks, you, no, thanks ron from the bottom of my heart because i i, I I really don't think people understand that, like, just think about being in your own mind and, like, what people, anyone with ALS and their families have to go through. The fact that we're capable of talking about it and bringing it out to people and people, the seven people that watch this show and six people that listen to it, um, can also send their good vibes simultaneously to Jason whenever this airs because that's what we want to do with this. And hopefully we can get amazing players like Ron who are way out of my pay grade. Like, dude, you say you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Every time I look at this, I'm just like, I shouldn't even be looking at it. But here I am and I get to present it to people like you. And that's the idea is to make Jason happy and for good people to play it. Absolutely. It would definitely be an honor and a privilege. So yeah, thank you. I want to ask, not not to change topics, but I want to ask, um, you're, you're also obviously a teacher and um, that's amazing. I can just tell by the way that you talk, you have so much wisdom and your experience. And I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that you share with your students or advice, maybe something that you could share with the people listening here that are emerging musicians or want to build something? Um, you know, what are some things that you share with your students that could be helpful to anyone that's here? So much, my God, where do you begin? We could talk about performing rights organizations and sound exchange and and <laughs> MLC and and so many other things, but copyrights and trademark law, it could all be helpful, but just practically, just be fucking genuine, be authentic, be legit, be you don't have to play any better than your own songs. Just do what you do well, whatever that is. And I always make the comparison and I say no, Pavarotti would sound like shit trying to sing a Bob Dylan song. Uh, and Bob Vice- Dylan sounds like shit trying like to sing a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> no, and Bob- Jimi Hendrix, on the oh, other hand, on. sounds awesome singing a Bob Dylan song. Bob Dylan, he inspired so many. You could hear him in Tom Petty. You could hear him in so many of people. Of course. And, Songwriter, and, not singer. Um, well, storyteller. Fair Phenomenal enough. Phenomenal storyteller, which is like a letter what color. I want to do. So... So with that, you know, Dylan may not sound good singing Pavarotti and uh, someone who we say is such an amazing singer, Pavarotti would not sound good singing at Dylan. So 
So it's all about what you do and expressing your true, legitimate, real self. And it doesn't matter what that is. Um, you know, whether it's just kind of shoegazing, just, you know, a wall of reverb and just two chords, or if you're doing some fancy schmancy shit, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. As long as you are expressing the real you and being authentic. If not, there's a little hole in the world that you were supposed to fill and you're not doing that. Uh, yeah, if you're going to do this stuff, if you're going to make music, if you're going to share a piece of yourself, yeah, you be fucking real because people are going to know if you're not and then you're just wasting everyone's time and you're not going to like what you see in the mirror. So definitely be genuine and authentic and you don't have to prove anything to anyone. You just have to, it's about digging deep and pulling out something that's real, that people are going to know when they hear it and they're going to feel it and it's going to medicate them in some good way. I that's feel like a, you're a philosopher. I was going to say, he sounds like a philosopher because you just pretty much paraphrase Heidegger, the 20th century German philosopher and his theory of authenticity versus inauthenticity, except that he actually thought that something terrible would have to happen. So like your father dies or whatever, before you would notice the birds and how beautiful it is outside and transcendentalism. But you have to have this horrible thing, but you can't live into a, a state of authenticity uh, until you've had this traumatic experience. And I feel like as a musician to be really at that certain level that you kind of have to go through that emotionally. And that's how you can be your authentic self and i feel like that you're just a philosopher dude like literally everything you say sounds like a philosophy to me that's just like it should be the book here's the hot sauce here's the 75 records i'm on and here's my book of philosophy but it's true it's you know i mean he's just yeah it's no way. I, I completely agree. I mean, and that's what makes you an excellent teacher. And I'll say from my perspective, having gone through classical music training, that's exactly what I did not like about my education is it was here is the small box and you have to fit into this. And if you don't, um, you're going to be shamed out of studio class and everyone's going to judge you and you're not going to have a career and you should go do something else. You know, and that was basically, and I didn't go to school that long ago, you know, within the last 10 years at university. And that's still very much part of the the ethos of classical music training is like, this is what it takes to have a career and anything else that you do is just riffraff. You know, my teacher's like, why are you playing this rock music? Why would you bother with this production stuff and mashing up songs? And I was, that really stuck with me for a long time. And I, when I talk to people that are successful, a lot of it comes back to having great teachers that did encourage them to be very good at what they do, of course, but also to harness their own voice and to do something that is true to them and not, you know, trying to fake something else. Yes. What we have to remember is that the box that we all stay in is created by the people who break out and don't listen to that shit. You know, it's like everyone says, you know, all the people who stay in the box tell you, stay in the box, stay in the box, stay in the box. It's too lonely out there with all the, you know, people who drive the world forward. Stay with me. And the ones who actually say, fuck that, and they step out of it, they create the new box. That's yeah. the thing. Well, that's the funny thing about, who, not to interrupt you, sorry, yeah. but that's, that's what's funny about music theory, you know, is everyone thinks that music theory is to be followed, but I mean, it is, but 
music theory was developed to reflect but the I, things that had already happened. I, I have a question for you, Siobhan, though. Because like, so he said there's a box and then there's people that break out of the box. But like when I read Robert Heinlein, like when I was a child, he had this thing called Coventry, where basically if you broke or did anything bad and you broke out of the box, that you had a choice of, of either being executed or going to this other place called Coventry. And basically Coventry was just like the box, except it's shittier. So, <laughs> Is that Coventry, Rhode Island? Is that... It could be. I mean, you have to ask Robert Heinlein. He's been dead for a long time. You know, but I think Coventry, Rhode Island's like a 17th century thing, so it's possible. Well, I come back. I mean, you know, think about like even classical composers, not to totally ignore what you said, but I mean, Stravinsky, right? We've talked about that. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> but we're talking about the box, right? Okay. And the box. Stravinsky, when he premiered we the right of Spring. Let people know that there's lots of box. People don't know that there's more than one box. There's JS box. There's like the 87 other box offshoots. Okay, now continue. No, I'm just, I was just talking about breaking the rules, right? You, you kind of have to for there to be progress. You know, Stravinsky, when he premiered The Rite of Spring, there was like riots in the theater. And people were like, this is garbage. What is this noise? And then all of a sudden you have 20th century. Huh? It wasn't Paganini. Didn't they say that he was like possessed by the devil and run out of town? Like the Robert Johnson story? He was an insane virtuoso. And people were like, this is not even possible that someone can play like this. But yeah. Right. I mean, right. Channeling impossibility in music is part of what changes the future, you know? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, people are frightened creatures. Humans are very, very frightened. We are governed by fear. Uh, it drives the majority of our choices. And anything new, anything outside the box, anything out of the, the, safety, the safety box scares the shit out of people. Uh, very few are brave enough to make the sacrifice to venture out <laughs> and those that do, either they create a new box or they just make the box bigger, uh, which is kind of what you want to do. And actually, that's something getting into guitar, even like so many guitar players, they would say, I'm stuck in the box. And say, like, well, don't try and jump into a new box and then you'll be stuck in that one. Just start expanding. Just start kicking at the sides. Start pushing the sides and see if you could expand a little bit. Make the box bigger. So, all right, you're doing this? All right, what if you just add a leading note into those? And then you have that. Uh, let's push on the other wall. Both. And, and then you it, have Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course he does. Of course. <laughs> uh, so, I'm just... Maybe that's, I was holding that's my perfect. breath, actually, I think. <laughs> I really was. I was holding my advice. breath when he was playing. I was holding my breath when, I, when you played, dude. Like, you're out, outrageous. <laughs> Well, no, but that's no, that's great, great advice. Great yeah, yeah, it's a great lesson that sometimes it's just the small changes in either direction that you eventually build upon. And that's that really makes it seem yeah. more accessible to do something different. And, One and note at a time out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And, and speaking of creating new boxes, can you take can you take the last you know few minutes of the, the show here and just kind of tell us what you're working on now? Just before I say that, I'm just going to say one last thing. Uh, keep one foot in the comfort zone and one foot out. And that's how you grow. So that's, that's also another piece of advice that I 
tend to give. So what am I working on now? I'm slowly, slowly, oh, so slowly because I put everybody else before me, uh, working on a, a solo album, instrumental solo album. Uh, it's getting there, little by little. Oh, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. I should play some. Let me see. Let me find something here. Um, I imagine you're producing all this yourself too. You're doing everything. Yeah. <laughs> so here's one. Wait, am I missing a file here? My. Uh oh. Did I accidentally? I might have accidentally deleted a song. Let me see. Oh, we've done, oh, we've done that. Oh before. no, it's there. I was in the wrong, wrong thing. Okay. Uh, here's one crazy ass one that I just love explaining the beat of it. Uh, okay, let me jump out of this. Actually, I can leave this. I'll just play the mix of it. It's so it's in seven four to start with, and so I was. With this one, I thought of it, I guess, the Meshuggah approach of sort of taking a beat and fucking it up and then playing to the beat. Uh, I had this idea. Is this kind of, yeah, I guess it's math metal. Uh, okay. This is me, air drums. So, seven to four. You got one and two and one and four and five and six and seven and one two three four one two three four one two three four five six we go one two three four five six seven one two three four five six seven but the feet are playing seven sixteen mm. where it's doing a, a what i call a seven shuffle like a normal six shuffle is, you know, this is going one, two, one, two, so you have, like that, a seven shuffle. So the feet are doing that and the music is dragging these low octaves along with those shuffle hits. So you have something stable on top going while it just forms this really interesting mix. And then I'm taking these just high, like pinched kind of. It's like a big reverb on them and stuff, just adding some kind of Star Trek stuff on top. That and sounds like a theremin, dude. Like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but let me ask you this. I love your vocals, dude. And people don't even realize this. Like, I, I actually, Scott, one of our friends who's behind this whole program, um, he... I was like, you know, he's saying in Asia. He was like, oh, that's that's some big shoes. How could he possibly do it? I'm like, listen to his fucking voice. And then I had, I, I think I sent him heat of the moment or something like that. And bro, so like you, you, you sang with Asia, like, and people don't realize that you have such a great voice. So one, please talk about your voice. And then secondly, why won't you use that amazing voice on this new record? Um, I just want to do one, another instrumental record. I got a couple of ideas. I had the Uncool album that I did 20 years ago that was basically like a rock metal album, but with, sounds like Tom Jones singing. I love Tom Jones. So, so like the music is all like heavy stuff and the vocals are just lounge. 
And so I'm thinking about maybe doing another uncool album of just heavy music with that Tom Jonesy kind of singing. Uh, I just love making music, all kinds of shit. So this one, I just want to do an instrumental one just because I haven't in a while just to shut up and play. Uh, so Fair enough. Yeah, as far as singing goes, oh, sorry, we're going to sing. Nope, that's, I was letting you talk. <laughs> Um, yeah, singing, depending on who I'm singing with, it's going to be a different type of voice. You know, different, you just engage different things the same way as a guitar player. Sometimes you play clean, sometimes you play with distortion, sometimes you use a wah. Well, same with your voice. You don't want to use the same amp sound for every kind of song or everything. You need multi dimensions you got to be a multi-dimensional singer all the best singers work uh, i always say in fact a lot of times when i start working with a band i'm producing we would just sit down and i would play them some aerosmith some janice joplin some led zeppelin i'll say listen to what they're all doing they are just making the sounds of emotions and adding words to them that's what's happening uh, sometimes they're not using words at all. They're just crying out. And in some way, uh, don't get tied to this whole X, Y coordinate of here's the word, here's the pitch, here's the word, here's the pitch, syllable, pitch, syllable, pitch. It's so easy for singers to get robotic with it. They think that mm-hmm. perfectly is when they're doing that consistently and accurately. No. You want to be imperfect. That's what makes it human. And that's what makes the voice a voice. So you need that imperfection. You need all of that in there. Well, then uh, let me ask you this. Because yesterday, I think, I forget what anniversary it was, but for Frank Zappa's Jazz from Hell, which was an instrumental record, but it got an explicit lyrics warning on it. Do you think that he, he was able to speak through his instruments? Because I feel like you're the only guy that can understand that. That just sounds like jazz from hell. Um, well, it's for me, it almost sounds like a, a vendetta from Chipper Gore. What, what down, a bitch. Yeah, MRC. That, that's, what I, that's what it comes off to me as. It's like, how You're can not going to take it. How can you put that on something, you know, explicit lyrics to something with no lyrics? That's a true story, by the way. If you guys, if you look it up, Jazz from Hell and Frank Zappa, for everyone to have some background, the PMRC was uh, Tipper Gore and some other asshole wives that were like, oh yeah, we should totally put explicit lyrics warning on records, which by the way, made them all way cooler to me. I was going to say that Uh, that influenced me to buy way more records when I saw that label. (laughs) I love that Guns N' Roses put like back in the day. It's like, if you buy this fucking record, I'm like, oh man, like this is cool. Like I feel like this is crazy. So yeah, the PMRC, look it up. I don't mind a label as long as they don't stop it from existing. Like if in the corner of my music, it says, you know, rated PG, rated this parental, you know, whatever it is, whatever, you know, to me, it bothers me because it's taking away a little bit of the artwork uh, with that crap on there. But as long as no one is stopping it from being heard, that's the thing. If anything, as you said, it brings more attention. To the stuff, so fine, all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places where music is not allowed to be heard. So if all we're doing is, is just putting a little something in the corner just for people to know what they're getting, uh, 
there. I mean, at the time, I was dead against it. But looking back, if that's all it is, okay, that's, there's no harm in that. If they want to ban music from being on the shelves, that's an issue. That's a problem. Yeah. So, wait, what the hell are we talking about again? <laughs> well, we're actually we're actually wrapping up the episode. We're wrapping up the show at this <laughs> no, point. We were, gonna, we were about to talk about something. What the hell was it? Um, oh, Ben can talk for hours about all the things. He, he can keep feeding you yeah. questions. <laughs> well, I don't I understand don't why they put the sticker on the Beatles yesterday and today. I feel like they should have just left the dead babies on it. Like, I don't like that type of censorship. What do you think about that? Okay, well, where do you draw the line? I guess there's different levels of... You know, in different time periods where things are considered whatever it was. I mean, you can watch a Buster Keaton movie where he's in blackface, you know, from 100 years ago. And at the time, that was comedy. Now that's offensive as shit. Uh, Virgin Killer album, or, you know, Scorpion's original cover. Uh, is that okay now? 50 How about Blazing Saddles? That movie made by a white Jewish guy. Which is also a hilarious movie, by the way. Just so yeah. you know, I remember oh, watching it on TV sure. when they used to when they used to edit it, and I and then I saw. Do you remember that moment? The first time you saw the unedited version, you probably well, you, you're from a different time from me, but I remember seeing the unedited version of Blazing Saddles and being like, "Oh my god, this yeah. is so hilarious!" But like, wow, am I so allowed to like this? Really, yeah, there's. I mean, that's the thing is that the line that we draw as far as what. Uh, society collectively considers offensive or obscene is always moving. You know, it tends to to do kind of this. Uh, you know, it, a lot of times it, it sucks. It's like, all right, you're going overboard. You know, people should not get so fucking offended and bent over this. Uh, in 50 years, people look back on it and say, how could you not be offended by that? Kind of thing. Uh, Do you think that Prince meant it was like a sine wave of the time? Because that's what you did. It's kind of like a sine wave. But like, is it kind of just like a sine wave of the time? It's like a kind of a steps, pointy steps. Okay. I guess I just didn't follow it. Step up, step down, a bigger step up. I wouldn't have won in operation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Pointy steps of progress. Yeah, I guess it's a... Uh, but, yeah. So, I guess that's that's the whole thing. Like, I wish they would. Where do they show all in the family? Archie Bunker is that still? Oh, we, we're talking about that with Satchel. No, no. Oh, how about Tom I... and Jerry, dude? Like I was saying this the other night, Tech Avery. If you watch old Tom and Jerry episodes or even Looney Tunes, bro, you can't show Looney Tunes anymore. How about Speedy Gonzalez or Pepe Le Pew? Like, you can't do that. I'm offended. It's completely canceled. All that shit. Or Tom and Jerry's like, Thomas! Thomas, get back here, Thomas! We know we know that Pepe Le Pew is your spirit animal. And <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're going to... We're gonna, we're, this is the end of uh, end of the episode. Ron, we, we, take, we thank you so much for taking the time with us. Make sure you guys check out yes. uh, bumblefoot.bandcamp.com. Tons of music up there. Bumblefoothotsauce.com. You know. Get bubble fucked! Get bumble fucked. <laughs> What's but, the uh, Scoville scale on that? I want to know this. What's the Scoville scale on it? Like, how much can, like, does this have, like, Carolina Reapers in it? Like, or is this just, like, taste, like, well, umami? Bumble fucked. Two of the sauces are very mild. One is, like, an everything, all purpose goes with everything kind of sauce. The other one is more barbecue y. Uh, but the bumble fucked, which surprisingly is the best seller, is really hot. The people that make the show hot ones, they did a blog and they said that Bumblefuck was the third hottest sauce in the world. 
it's it's up there. Uh, do I agree with that? I mean, this is some hot shit. Can you can you can you uh, eat those like those fucking crazy people that eat the ghost peppers and then they go on and then they eat like the Carolina Reapers and then some assholes like I bred these to be seven million on the scope. Can you do that? I can, but I don't like to. It hurts. Uh, and I don't need that reminder of being alive quite that extreme the way I might have used to. <laughs> but um, yeah, Bumblefuck, it's pretty hot. If you're going to use it, usually just for a whole plate of food, maybe one drop would heat up a lot, a whole plate of food. If you're just going to take a taste on, on a forkful of food, just touch the tip of one of the tongues of the fork, one of the teeth to it. Just What if you live in Staten Island, where you're from, and you want to mix it in with some water and then spray somebody who's trying to mug you? Would that work, too, with the capsaicin content? It's two or three times hotter than commercial grade pepper spray. That's Wow. Ladies, that's, 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 a tag, that's, a, that's a tagline right there. <laughs> yeah. All right. But thank you once again, Ron, for taking the time to hang with we us. Yeah, you, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for being pleasure. a Lost Symphony. Thank you all so much. It's been yes. great. We could do this for hours more, I could tell. Absolutely. We could, we'll, oh, we'll, yeah. We've got to have you back. When you do have that solo record, especially, we definitely want to check it out we get, so we can actually hear that the, the track that you were talking about for sure. So we'll be in touch. Uh, we can't wait to hear the new stuff. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. 2020-D.com. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 116, featuring Doug Pinnock of King's X. Check it out. You've written, been writing songs since you were 18, and it's been 50 years or 60 years you just got to get better at what you do. It might be ACDC and it's the same song over and over again, but when you see ACDC live, you get goosebumps hearing them do that same song over and over again. And it's all about doing what you do and keep doing it. A lot of people think that by the time you're 25 years old and you didn't make it, it's over. Well, I, we didn't get a record deal until I was 38. And now I'm 70 and I'm still making music. And like one time about 30 years ago or 20 years ago, Yoko Ono, who was 70 at the time, had a hit record. And they said, Yoko Ono at 70 years old has a hit record. I'm thinking, whoa, we can keep doing this. We can keep doing this. (laughs) Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.